0: Service. So, if you uh, were wondering why things look a little bit different, that's why. You know, I have a book on my shelf, and the title of that book is 10 Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a tongue in cheek way of saying that Jesus had some hard pills to swallow. And this morning, we come to what is probably the most challenging thing that Jesus ever said. You know, these verses are hard to understand, they're hard to live by, and in the current times, hard to accept. Jesus has been bringing the heat all the Sermon on the Mount, but what Jesus says this morning is going to leave the crowds picking up their jaws up off the floor. It is one singular statement of his ministry that ought to take our own breath away. These verses are final, they're irreversible, and they are damning. And it is, quite frankly, the hardest saying of the whole Sermon on the Mount. So if you're not with me already, we're in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew seven 21. I'm going to read it uh, down to verse 23. Follow along as I read it. This is the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We're almost to the end of the greatest sermon ever given And now Jesus gives an unavoidable warning to all who professed Christ as Lord. This warning is not just for the people who were there on the mount that day. It is for you and for me this morning. There are many people who have read their Bibles who have never really given these verses the attention that they deserve. And Church of the Canyons, it's too scary to just gloss over these verses. And so the main point this morning, you can put it in your notes, the main point is self-deception is alive and well, especially for those who claim the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me say it again. Self-deception is alive and well, especially for those who claim the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. In other words, the greatest form of self-deception lies in the hearts of religious people. Think about it. The verses that we just read say nothing about those who deny God. And these verses say nothing about those who follow after false gods. These verses are pointed directly at those who say that they are Christians when in reality they are not. They believe that they believe. They believe that they are going to heaven. They are so tightly wrapped inside the religious self-deception that they dare defend their own form of righteousness in the very presence of Christ. The religiously self-deceived are the most blind people in the world. They have allowed what should have been evident to them to become hidden to them hidden from their friends, hidden from themselves. And yet the tragic truth is that it was never hidden from God. Christ knew their true condition. Christ always knew the truth about them, but he never knew them. And that's what we're going to study this morning in our passage Comes really in the middle of a thought, right? Jesus has been warning about the self righteousness and how to identify it. A few verses above this, uh, we are taught that we will know the false prophets by their fruit, right? Just like an apple tree will never produce an orange, so the wolf, clothed in sheep's clothing, cannot produce the fruit of righteousness. And next week, as Dwayne wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see another picture of stark contrast between those who build their houses on the shifting sand and those who build their houses on the solid rock of Christ's words. But this morning, we catch a glimpse of Judgment Day. We get to see a real conversation of judgment And the result of this conversation was paved in life and now it's being realized in death. And the outcome really can only be this for the religiously self-deluded and those who practice their righteousness before men. This can only be the outcome. And yet, those who plead with Christ on the day of judgment don't know that yet. They believe that there's still time but they couldn't be more wrong. Let me read you the passage one more time. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So do you hear it in the text? There's a permanence here. There's an irreversibility here. There's a finality to this conversation. And there's seemingly no hope in these words. Every one of the souls mentioned here in our passage, they're surprised about what is happening. They're surprised to be in this predicament. There were many who felt that entering into heaven was going to be a slam dunk. And yet, they're denied entrance. And here's the important observation: As you read the text again, the ones who are denied are not the rejectors of Christ. These are people who claimed Christ. These are the religious ones. These are the active people. These are not the ones neglecting the assembly, uh, assembling together as is the habit of some. But these are the zealous, the active, the religiously blind people. And before Christ, they plead, consider our lives, Lord. Consider what we did, who we are, what we stood for, how we performed. And yet Jesus does not bend an inch for them. He doesn't say anything to comfort them. But he gives us clues, right, in the text of why they're there. And I know my introduction is long this morning, but stay with me. Like we live in a world of deception. And Jesus' words here warn us against religious self-deception. You know, we live in a world of swindlers and deceivers, right? People who pretend to be something that they're not, you know, people who portray themselves to be, you know, licensed therapists only to find out that they purchased their degree online. You know, I get like 15 calls a day from people pretending that they're with the IRS or, or banks looking out to give away free capital or they're trying to reach me to, uh, about my car's extended warranty. <laughs> they wouldn't do that if people didn't get hoodwinked. And it happens so often that there are entire fraud divisions to protect us from this kind of deception. There are laws on the books to defend victims of deception. And yet, what's important to understand this morning is that our own hearts can live in a world of self-deception. We can be the ones that fool ourselves. We can be the pretenders. We can be the scam artists. We can be the deceivers. We can dupe ourselves. We can pretend we're doing something good when we're not. We believe that we're safe when the truth is we're in grave danger. We assume that we're doing just fine, though we're hanging over a fiery precipice. We perpetuate the scam against ourselves. We become our own victims. We prey on ourselves. And there's no laws to protect us from that crime. And yet, here, on the Sermon on the Mount, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, we find a kind of spiritual protection. Jesus' words are a protection against self-deception for the people who can see it. And we know it, right, because of the very fact that he spoke these words while they were still living. The people around them still had breath in their lungs. And so if you are breathing this morning, there's still time to repent. He's graciously providing them and us this morning with a preventative warning while there's still time in this life. And so, we take great hope in these words, though they seem so hopeless. This morning, if you, as you see in your notes, we're going to see three shocking revelations present in the life of the self-deceived. Three shocking revelations present in the, in the lives of the self-deceived. And these points are designed so that you can ask yourself this, these questions as we move through and as we enter into a time of communion, to make sure that your faith is genuine So fight the temptation this morning to let your mind wander or be distracted by your neighbor. There's too much at stake here with what the Lord says to us. So let's look at the first shocking revelation that Jesus gives to the self-deceived. Number one, the self-deceived have made God governable. The self-deceived have made God governable. If you claim Christ, and your life has not changed as a result, then you are making God fit in your own box. Let me develop that idea for you. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who uh, is in heaven will enter. This is the first shocking statement that Jesus delivers to our systems. And do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying not everyone who claims to be a Christian will go to heaven. And to be more specific, not everyone who emphatically is, is emphatically certain that Jesus Christ is Lord of all will enter into the kingdom. And I really say emphatically certain about that because these professors of Christ that we see here in verse 21... Repeat the designation twice, right? They understand theology, they get it, but it hasn't made the connection from their mind to their hearts. They say, Lord, Lord, and that use of Lord, Lord is very telling to us, and so what does that word mean, Lord? The word Lord is used in a variety of different ways throughout the, uh, the ancient world, and originally, it meant something uh, like to be the owner of something, like in Matthew chapter 20, talking about the owner of a vineyard. But it also can be used of important people, right? Uh, and it just in general. And then it eventually became this uh, ceremonial or conventional way of addressing people in polite society. It would be like similar to the expression saying, uh, uh, sir. And so in the Romans, they even used it uh, talking about their emperor in Acts 25. And the people often would refer to their own gods using a, that same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But by the, old, by the time the Old Testament was translated into Greek, we find that the Greek word kur- kurios that was used to translate, that, used that word to translate the name of God, Yahweh. So when Jesus' followers began to call him Lord, they understood who they were addressing, and they were addressing him as God. And in fact, at the end of Jesus' ministry, when when he instructed his disciples to go find him a donkey to use, what was his instruction to the uh, disciples if someone were to question them? He said, tell them that the Lord has need of them. Therefore, Jesus aligned this title of Lord with himself. And so as we go back to the text and we see these deceived men and women cry out, Lord, Lord, we are being told that they have good theology. Right? If you have good theology, but again, it hasn't changed your heart, you've reduced God to fit your own box. They knew of lordship salvation. In other words, these these desperate souls, they understood that Jesus demanded himself to be seen as Lord. And as master, and as ruler, and as sovereign. They not only acknowledged this demand, but they also viewed themselves as believing this demand. They were convinced that he is Lord, but Jesus wasn't convinced, not for a second. So he begins this section by saying the exact opposite of what those listening to him on that mount would have believed he would have said. Right? Surely anyone. Who recognized Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene, son of Mary and Joseph, as not merely human, but rather the Lord God of the entire universe, they would have to belong to God, right? They would have to be believers, right? To profess Jesus as Lord at that time was to defy the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. To proclaim, to proclaim Jesus as Lord would cost them their families, it could cost them their friends and vocations. These words, Lord, Lord, could end up costing them their life. And yet Jesus here knocks the air out of their preconceptions. Because yet again, the self-deceived have put God into a box. Jesus is saying, it is not enough. Just because you hear these words and agree with them and understand them and even publicly proclaim them, that isn't proof that you belong to me. And this is stunning. It's stupefying. You know, if someone was drinking water there in the Sermon on the Mount, you might have seen a spit take. Now, for those listening to this and and hearing this conversation, it was rhetorically in the future for them. But they understood the context of the sermon very well, right? The disciples and those listening around them might have felt some kind of comfort just knowing that Jesus was just talking about the false prophets, And he tells them and he tells us this morning to examine the the lives of those false prophets. Not to trust them because their prophecies and lives were false. And he ends that in verse 20 by telling the crowd, you will know them by their fruit. And so at first, perhaps those disciples and those hearing Jesus talk, listening in the crowd, they would have thought, you know what, Jesus is talking about those false prophets. Oh, that's who he's referring to. Okay, I'm good. And those false prophets might have even been so bold as to claim Jesus Christ as Lord. And maybe that's what those disciples thought. That Jesus was talking about those false prophets. And that would make sense, right? Because of the illustrations that Jesus used to to, um, describe those who prophesied in his name. And cast out demons and perform miracles. But Jesus isn't honing down that narrow yet. He begins very, very broad. Very, very general And instead of narrowing down to to pin down those false prophets, he includes everyone in the equation. He could have said, don't worry about those men, those false prophets. They'll stand face to face and they'll be shocked when they see me on the judgment day. He could have said that, but that's not what he says. No, he says something more inclusive, something much more sweeping. He says, not everyone who claims me knows me. So Jesus, he brings us to the point where he makes us think about the evil in others, and then he forces us to consider the evil within our own hearts. He swings from warning them uh, about being deceived by false prophets to now warning us about being deceived by our own false hearts. And I believe that if that's all he ever said on the subject, it would have been enough. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he goes on to contrast what he means with something that's helpful to understand the depth of the point that he's making. He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but. Do you see that? The transition in the text, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So does that mean that we have to do something to be accepted by the Father? Jesus, he's not, Jesus is not contrasting just the, uh, uh, just, just the words, Lord, Lord, with doing good works. He's not just contrasting the difference between uh, what you say and then what you do. He's not just contrasting or commenting on the need for works here. Because in, in John chapter 6, verse 28, people ask Jesus, what, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus gives an, an, an amazing answer here. Jesus answered them by saying, this is the work of God. So if you want to know the work of God, listen up. Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So doing the will of the Father is believing the Son. Believing in Christ as Lord. And in a moment, Christ will bring up the issue of religious actions. And, and it's so, so it seems by doing the will of God, the Father has more to do with the external works. Right? Because they seem so good now and in this life. But something more is happening. It is possible to believe that you believe and not truly believe. It's possible to say that Christ is your God and do religious works and still not belong to him. So Jesus is driving at a bigger issue here. And I believe this morning... Uh, The the underlying theme created here by the proclamation of Christ is this. We are all in danger of having God in our own man-made box. See, belief without faith reduces God to just a good luck charm. Oftentimes, we have made God governable. We've taken what we've read and what we've understood and what we figured out through Bible study and by listening to sermons and amening during sermons, then we filled in what is required of us and set that in place to be approved by what our reactions, what we think is best. See, we've, we've oftentimes, we've allowed God a platform and, and we have uh, given him you know, time to speak. We have applauded his messages. We've found him to be very wise and very helpful to us. And then we continue on with our lives like nothing ever happened. We've put God into a box. We've made him controllable. We like him to stay in his box. We don't like him to get any bigger. Right? He has boundaries and checkpoints, and we're comfortable with that. As long as we can manage our own expectations and allow room for his demands, we allow him to stay in that room that we've created for him. But the problem with that is God is bigger than that. God is bigger than the Bible. God is everything, yes, that the scriptures say, but he's more than what he's been revealed to be. God is more than what you and I could ever be comfortable with. God is more than you and I could ever fathom. He will not be made manageable. He will not be reduced to being convenient. He will not allow us to live in the lap of luxury, trying to live a peaceful coexistence with him as if we were taming a wild animal. He is not safe. He is not easy to get a handle on. He is bigger than your thought of him. He is larger than your comfort zone. He is God. He is high and lifted up. He is imminent and he is unlike us. And somehow some way we read that these hellbound professors believed otherwise. Somehow they believed they were going to heaven and going to be accepted by God and it was just going to be a matter of a proverbial handshake between them and God. They believed that they would merely needed to agree with the great theological truths that they read about or that they heard about. They thought that would be enough. Somehow they were seduced into believing that salvation has no demands on their life. See, the gospel requires everything from you. But somehow, this demand of God is never fully absorbed by them. They never, the gospel never fully engulfed them. They put his lordship into a box. They never connected the dots. See, the self-deceived made God governable. And so the next shocking revelation here that Jesus would have us consider this morning is not only have we made God governable, but they've made religion defendable. The self-deceived make religion defendable. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And here's something very unexpected, very troubling. You know, just at the time where Jesus' listeners were about to grasp his first statement concerning on how uh, um, only people entering the kingdom of God were those who were doing the will of the Father, our, our Lord then delivers the next shock to their system, saying that religious activity isn't the answer either. In other words, Jesus is, just, is he's turning the corner and he's saying, you're not doing the will of my Father. And then he says, and by the way, not doing the will of my father includes all of your religiosity. And this is hard. Right? We're tempted to believe that those people who go to church, who attend Christian conferences, who go to Christian colleges, who host Bible studies, who lead Bible studies, who preach sermons and have made church their entire lives, we are tempted to believe that they are better than the opposite those who are still in bed this morning, hungover from last night. But they're not always different. What do I mean? People tend to gravitate toward the kind of life that suits them best, right? If they're unbelievers, they move towards things uh, of this, this world that, that serve as counterfeits, substitute for real life. But there are also those people who just become uncomfortable with the dog-eat-dog world of, of, the, of the life of a secular man, they don't have. They don't like having to fight the world all the time, and so what they do is they'll they'll turn in and to join the world of religion because it, it feels good. The, the old life doesn't feel good to them anymore. Maybe we'll find satisfaction uh, inside religion, and so many go to Christianity for their identity, and it's kind of attractive to them. Right? They become. They become. They they begin. To love those hard messages about heaven and hell. They love studying theology and it gives them a platform to spew their, their undefined thoughts. Now everything becomes more acceptable and refined and religion uh, is a good club to be in. Religion becomes their new hobby. Religion gives them purpose and being and spirituality makes them kind of oddly special. And Christianity Right? If you go into a Bible loving church, it's an instant loving community, and we're uh, in a world that's very, very harsh. And Jesus says, Look, they aren't going to heaven either. And this will be the cry of many, verse 22 says. Many will say to me, That day of judgment demands all those who refuse to bend the knee to receive their sentencing. And it comes, this day of judgment, when it comes to that day of judgment, alongside the criminals, the liars, the murderers, the homosexuals, the rapists, you will find religious men. And these religious men, they're not just Muslim or Jewish or New Age or Buddhist or Mormon or Roman Catholic or Jehovah's Witness. No, right alongside all of those will be the evangelical, the charismatic, and the reformed. They will violently defend their lives before God, and their cry will be, God, we were religious. We did what you wanted us to. The defense of their lives will be their religious actions, and it's not going to be enough. See what the verse says? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? What does that mean? When the New Testament was written down, it was common for the early church people to have those who prophesied in their midst. Those are the ones who spoke the word of God for God to the congregation. Those are the ones who communicated truth. All right, so just like a parrot who can say a few English words, that doesn't make them human, right? Right? And so these who speak the truth, the false prophets, the religious men who, who uh, rely on their religious, religious actions, they've never quite internalized the truth that they speak. They spoke truth. They spoke the gospel. And the prophets here, they, they would think that Christ would want them to say these words, right? And these being judged in verse 22, they're crying out to Christ, didn't you hear what I said? Years and years ago, I knew a man who was a Bible study teacher. He was a faithful man to the text. You know, I learned a lot from him. You know, I still think about the lessons that he taught me. But come to find out, he was living a second life that nobody knew about, and he ended up committing murder. And so what am I to do with what I learned from him? Philippians chapter 1, 17, Paul says that some proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. And then and then, the, right in the next verse, what does Paul say? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, that Christ is proclaimed and in this, yes, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And Paul can say that only because he knows this passage this morning knowing that Christ will ultimately be the judge. And so what am I to think of that man's ministry? Listen, God saves through his gospel, not through men. Men are blessed, yes, to proclaim the gospel, but it doesn't exonerate men from their own wickedness. And so here's the point. Here's Jesus' point this morning. Religious acts cannot defend us. Religious acts cannot defend us. And I want you to grasp this because they can be done by those who are deceived. And this is very hard to hear. I understand it. Listen, the people who are self-deceived don't know they are self-deceived. All right, case in point. Look at the next religious activity that Christ mentions here. And in your name we cast out demons and performed many miracles. Now it's hard for us to imagine sometimes that in the New Testament when Jesus Christ walked the earth it seemed like the supernatural world was set on fire. Right? Miracles occurred and exorcisms occurred and we know that in the first century Israel uh, uh, they, they cast out demons in the name of, uh, of Jesus and they cast out demons in other people's names because in Matthew chapter 12 the Pharisees, they attribute Jesus' work to Satan. Right? You're, they, they accuse him of casting out Demons in the name of Beelzebul. And Jesus says, if I do that, if I'm casting out demons in the name of Beelzebul, then by whose name are your sons casting them out? And we see in Acts chapter 19 the same thing happening with the sons of Sceva. They were Jewish exorcists. And Mark 9.38 says, they, they say, teacher, you know, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent them. Because they were not following us. And Jesus said, don't hinder them. For there's no one who will be able to perform a miracle in my name. And be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. And in, that, in that text, it's not whether or not that they were personally heaven bound. But whether or not they were hindering the work and the mission of Christ ultimately performing exorcisms were not evidences of salvation. Right? Even Judas could perform exorcism. He just couldn't exorcise the demon out of his own heart. So their defense of religious acts in reality are indefensible. Indefensible. Here's the third shock that Jesus would have us consider this morning. Shocking revelation here. Not only have the self-deceived made God to fit their box or made, them governor, gave, made him governable and made religion defendable, but number three, the self-deceived have made all deception allowable. Made deception allowable. And this is what cuts the deepest, I think. Look at verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness. There's, a, there's a, uh, a parallel passage in Luke chapter 13, verse 25 through 27. I'm going to read that for you. Jesus is speaking again. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and, and, begin to st- and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you'll go to him and begin to say, Well, we ate and drank in your presence, and we taught in your streets. And he will say to them, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And in that text, they appeal to him, not by the various deeds that they had performed, but refer to the fact that they had eaten with him, they had drunk with him in his presence, and that that they had taught in his streets. And again, he says, I do not know where you are from. And this is a, a consistent teaching all throughout the New Testament. And there are some very telling phrases here that I want you to see in all of this. Right? In Matthew 7, when Jesus says, I never knew you, he, it crushed his listeners. When Jesus says, I never knew you, he sends the entire crowd into a tailspin. What exactly is he saying here? First and foremost, we have to make note of this. He's never saying that he wasn't aware of their existence, right? As if God omniscient omniscient and uh, sovereign would somehow be unaware of uh, any aspect of his own creation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I never knew you. We were never friends. You assumed that you had a relationship with me that we never had. You thought you prayed to me. You thought you loved me. You thought you defended me. But truth be known, it was all a lie. You deceived yourself because your name is never written in the book of life. Now how can that happen? How does this happen? Isn't that the most important question that we can ask ourselves this morning? How can that be? Well, you can see just by looking at the rest of verse 23, Jesus says that the same individuals who cried, Lord, Lord, the same people who did many good religious works are the exact same people behind the scenes who practice lawlessness. Practice lawlessness. According to one commentator, this idea of lawlessness refers to, not to any outward uh, conduct, but to the inner state of heart. In in other words, these religious, these spiritual, church-going zealots are on the outside like our Christians, but on the inside, they're acting in evil continuously. They've made a practice of it. They've rehearsed it. They were good at it. And it was literally second nature to to those self-deceived religious people. And then they stopped questioning the differences on the inside due to all the determination that they saw on the outside. They allowed the inside to be evil. They allowed the inside to go unchecked. This is the lie that they told themselves, and this is the fraud that they pretended not to see. They became so convinced, so rehearsed in their Christian externalism that they allowed the inside to rot away. They had basements full of dead men's bones while their houses are painted white. They saw so much external success and human affirmation concerning their Christian facades that they began to forget the priority of the inner man. They were like diseased lepers who had their, uh, who, the, whose faces are rotting away and they cover it with a Halloween mask and then begin to look in the mirror and, and convince themselves that that's in the mirror who I am on the inside. They wanted what they wanted so badly that they believed the greatest lie was actually the truth. And it seems as if they had for a long time permitted this ongoing sin in their heart to be a part of their lives, so much so that it slowly and suddenly became acceptable to them and then unnoticeable and then finally non-contradicted. It's like a man who has a limp who's compensated it for for so long that now he barely notices he has a limp. They learned to live with themselves. And this is so deep, so deceiving, so disastrous that even once that they are dead, they're still banging on heaven's door. Jesus paints them as still denying their state while they're standing before Christ himself. Which makes you wonder, could they ever see it? Could they ever see, even now, as they burn in judgment? They allowed the deception. And could it happen at this church? Could it happen here? Yes, of course it can. So how does it happen? How does it happen? A.W. Tozer, a theologian theologian and pastor, he once wrote about this idea of self-deception and how to avoid it. It's a longer portion uh, that I normally quote, but I want to read you the section that he writes. I quote, Of all forms of deception, self-deception is the most deadly. And of all the deceived persons, the self-deceived are the least likely to discover the fraud. The reason for this is simple. When a man is deceived by another, he is deceived against his will. He is contending against every adversary and is temporarily the victim of the other's guile since he expects his foe to take advantage of him. He is watchful and quick to suspect trickery and under such circumstances it is possible to be deceived sometimes for a short while but because the victim is resisting he may break out of the trap and escape before too long. But with the self-deceived it is quite different. He is his own enemy and is working the fraud against himself. He wants to believe the lie and is psychologically conditioned to do so. He does not resist the deceit, but he collaborates with it against himself. There's no struggle because the victim surrenders before the fight even begins. He enjoys being deceived. The fallen heart is by nature idolatrous, and there appears to be no limit to which some of us will go to save our own idol or at the same time telling ourselves eagerly that we are trusting in Christ alone. It takes a violent act of renunciation to deliver us from the hidden idol. And since very few modern Christians understand that such an act is necessary, and only a small number of those who are willing to do it it follows that a relatively few professors of the Christian faith these days have ever experienced the painful act of renunciation that frees the heart from idolatry. Prayer is usually recommended as the panacea for all ills and the key to open up, opening up every prison door. And it would indeed be difficult to overstate the advantages and privilege that comes with spirit-inspired prayer. But we must not forget that unless we are wise and watchful, prayer itself becomes a source of self-deception. There are many kinds of prayer, as our problems and some kinds are not acceptable to God. Christ flatly rejected the prayers of the hypocrites. James declares that just uh, some religious persons they asked and they received not because they ask amiss. To escape self-deception, the praying man must come out clean and honest. He cannot hide in the cross while concealing his dirty garment. Grace will save a man, but it will not save the man and his idol. The blood of Christ will shield the penitent sinner alone, but never the sinner and his idol. Faith will justify the the sinner, but it will never justify the sinner and the sin. No amount of pleading will make evil good or wrong right. A man, man-gage, in a great deal of humble talk before God and get no response because unknown to himself, he's using prayer to disguise disobedience. He may lie in, for hours in sackcloth and ashes with no higher motive than to try to persuade God to come over onto his side so that he can save his own way. He may grovel before God in a welter of self-accusation, refuse to give up his secret sins, and be rejected for his pain it can happen and so how can we remain free from self-deception then the answer sounds a bit old-fashioned but here it is mean what you say and never say what you do not mean either to god or to man think candid thoughts and act forthrightly always whatever the consequences To do this will bring the cross into your life and keep you dead to self in public opinion. And it may get you in trouble sometimes, but a guileless mind is a great treasure and worth the prize. End quote. Wow. That's a hard saying. When I was in high school, a car uh, filled with three of my classmates and football team members left the school campus in a Camaro. They headed up Latuna Canyon off the 210 freeway, and the first clue that something terrible had happened was the helicopter rotors washing over the school. Word quickly spread that two of my classmates had died in the crash in the, when the driver lost control of the car and slammed into a tree. This, this accident happened 18 years ago, and I drive that road several times a week. And not a time goes by where I do not think of that accident and the young men who lost their lives. Death came to both of them in a blink of an eye. The mailbox that they hit since been replaced and the tree, it it reminds me every time I drive by it, it reminds me of the transitory nature of this life. It acts as a warning to my soul as well. And I begin to notice, you know, as the years pass, the devastation uh, is, is soon forgotten. And now, uh, as I drive, you know I purposely look again for that spot because I don't want to forget what happened that afternoon. As thousands of cars drive over that spot, oblivious to what lies beneath. But let that be a lesson, and may Matthew 7 be a lesson to us, that we m- not be unprepared. While there is still breath, you still have time to repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that I have put some light onto this today. I pray that we wouldn't gloss over Matthew 7 as we read on to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and the end of the Gospel. I pray that we stop and we look and we listen and we meditate and we question, why would your son give such a statement to the disciples And we're reminded also that Judas sat there listening. He heard this. And even Judas himself, not knowing that he would betray your son, heard the exact same words and yet betrayed Christ with a kiss. We cannot allow ourselves to be deceived. We cannot allow ourselves to go skipping worry-free through this Christian life with no thought about our genuineness of our faith. Father, let us have an entirely candid conversation with our own hearts even now and help us not to become such a part of the regular routine of church or of bible study or just sitting and listening to sermons that we somehow some way ignore that quiet voice that says beware i know i know that there are many here that love you whose faith is in you and a message like this could jar their assurance in you and i pray that this is not the case I pray that this sermon and the words that I spoke this morning have gone to the hearts of those people who, who, um, who are unsure. Ask themselves, is it true of me? God, please be faithful and good as you always are. To grant them true repentance, true faith. That they would see that you are not a God that can be managed. That you are a God that that needs any kind of defense. you are the one who are, is to be worshipped. You are the one to be adored. The king of kings and lord of lords. That you are the great I am. And that as we bow our hearts before you in humility and need. That you bathe our hearts with assurance. Knowing that we depend not on our religiosity. Our religious actions. Or our church attendance but that we rely solely on the Son of God who loved us and gave his life for us. And let that be our daily prayer.